and welcome to Unjustly Maligned, the show for people who go against the grain. We seek to rehabilitate overlooked, ignored, derided, and just plain hated contributions to pop culture. Novels, movies, music, comic books, video games, classicist sculpture, whatever. If everyone hates it, we'll find someone who loves it and let them explain why you should too. This is episode 10 for the 4th of May, and you can find the show notes at ump.fm. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston, and my guest today is a woman who works in the tech industry by day, but by night, and more than the occasional weekend, she blogs, discusses, and podcasts about all things nerdy and sci-fi. She's best known as one of the hosts of the Doctor Who podcast Verity, and is also, despite having joined way back in 2013, still the new girl on The Incomparable. She is, of course, Miss Erica Ensign. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, so uh, the reason I mentioned, I don't normally mention the date in the intro. I mentioned it here because this is a very special episode. Mm -hmm. It is for the 4th of May, May the 4th, (laughs) which gives you a clue as to what we're going to talk about. So without any further ado, Erica, why don't you start off by telling us what you've chosen and then give us some context around its release, the reaction to it upon release, why it is generally maligned and why you think that it shouldn't be. Well, I am here today to talk about uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, uh, which was was released way back in the very late 90s and had quite the fanfare around it when it was coming out. Everybody was was excited after decades and decades of waiting for a new Star Wars movie. It was it was coming out. So there was there was quite a bit of hullabaloo surrounding that. And for a while, at least, everybody was very excited about it. And from what I could tell, seemed to love it. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, hindsight, I suppose, is 2020. And there's actually an entire episode of the Incomparable podcast about why you should hate this movie. <laughs> I think there are actually two. I think it was one of the ones they divided into was two it? parts. Yeah. <laughs> See, I never listened to it because I just didn't really want to hear them tear it down. So maybe after this, I will go back and, and perhaps have a more balanced view of the film overall. But uh, for, I just kind of wanted to, to live in my, my joy, joyful memories for a while longer. I don't think you're going to get much of a balanced view from that episode. I remember it. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, they, they tear into it. But, okay, so... Yes, it was released in the late 90s, as you say, amidst, amidst a, a massive hullabaloo. I remember it. I am uh, I'm just old enough to have seen the original Star Wars in the theatres when it was released. Uh, I was a very young child, but I was old enough to, you know, to go and see it, and I remember it. And so... I was technically there in the theatre, but I was in utero, so I'm not <laughs> sure if that counts. Wow. Um, okay, but that speaks well of your mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... I'm a massive Star Wars fan. I have been a huge Star Wars fan all my life. I loved the original movies. Uh, my oldest friend is a huge Star Wars nut who actually has the Rebel Flame tattoo on his arm. Um, you know, I, I used to play the original West End Games RPG. I loved these movies and I was so excited when episode one was announced because for years the story had been that George Lucas planned to make nine movies. He was going to make three prequels and then three sequels that took place after Jedi. And we were like, yes, yes, finally, he's going to do it. And then it was released. And I'm really surprised to hear you say that you thought everybody loved it when it came out. Because my impression, and certainly my own reaction, was exactly the opposite. So tell me more about that, because that's really interesting. Well, I keep in mind at that time, I was not plugged into any sort of fandom at all. So I didn't have any concept of what the rest of the world thought about things. I knew that I liked it and I knew that my friends 
uh, who I you know was, was living with at the time went back to see it again and again. And I, I mean, maybe I'm just blocking it out, but I don't remember anybody bashing it uh, around me. So I, it's quite possible that those folks were just sort of caught up in the enthusiasm at the time because now they <laughs> they definitely hate it too. So <laughs> so I, I don't really know where my uh, my view on that is is coming from. It may not be based at all in reality, but that's sort of the rosy hazy memory that I that I sort of have of that time because. Like I said, I, I was not paying attention to movie reviews. I didn't, I didn't go online and look at you know fan review sites or read zines or any of that kind of stuff. So I, I just had no idea of of the larger world that was that was out there at the time. That's really interesting. And I'm going to guess. I mean, were your friends roughly the same age as you? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. So you were all presumably too young to have seen anything bar maybe Jedi in the theaters. Correct. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, full disclosure here, I am I'm definitely not saddled with the same Star Wars baggage that, that um, a lot of people are, and even a lot of my friends who are the same age are. Uh, I know that I saw it as a child, you know, renting VHSs, but... And I'm pretty sure I saw it a few times, actually, but it never really grabbed me in the same way that it did so many other people, um, slightly older and even people my age. Uh, because I think for for a lot of people, it was the first thing that they saw that really grabbed hold of their imagination and gave them a, a universe to play in, you know, one that they just wanted to keep playing in for decades to come. Um, but I already had that at the time that I first saw Star Wars because I was swept up by Doctor Who at the age of five. And I don't think at that point there was any more room in my head, nothing could even touch that as far as just having a place in my psyche. So while I really enjoyed Star Wars, I wasn't even remotely wrapped up in it. Um, I think I actually got more wrapped up in Star Wars as I got older and approached college. And that was really just sort of by association because I had, like I said, close friends and roommates who had seen the films literally hundreds of times. They'd read all the books, they'd consumed oodles of the associated media. So by the time they re-released the original trilogy, you know, with the extra Wookiees and stuff, I was pretty caught up in Star Wars mania. But for me, it was more from a place of excitement and joy that Star Wars just existed and created all this happiness in the world. It wasn't so much because I felt particularly connected to that universe in the same way that I did to Doctor Who or some of the other books that I'd read repeatedly. So when they announced they were making a new film finally i was carried along on this wave of enthusiasm i mean seriously it was like so huge you could surf on it but when tickets went on sale i didn't wait outside overnight with my roommates in part because i think i recognized that i didn't have the level of devotion even at that time to really you know hang with those hardcore folks all night long but I did hang out in line with them a lot um, for many, many hours. I made multiple Taco Bell runs, Mountain Dew runs, you know, to keep everybody fueled. Um, because I've always responded really strongly to group outpourings of, of love and enthusiasm. And that's why attending fan run conventions is one of my favorite things to do in the whole world. I kind of get high off of that sort of thing. So if I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of people who are just intensely loving something, I cannot help but get excited about it too. So the whole, like I said, hullabaloo surrounding The Phantom Menace, it was all like candy to me. I just love every single minute of it. My roommate Jeff took off of work and he bought tickets to every single showing on opening day. Wow. He spent the entire day just seeing it again and again. Um, I only saw it once that day, but it was, of course, in a sold-out theater full of fellow nerds who had been waiting for this thing for most of their lives, some of them all of their lives. Uh, and the excitement was just overwhelming. So the cheers and hoots and cries of 
practically ecstasy when the 20th Century Fox logo appeared on the screen and we heard that fanfare. Like, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. So, you know, I'm sure many people listening remember exactly that experience. It was it was amazing. So as a side note, I would like to point out that no amount of disappointment later can erase the fact that we had that joy and that anticipation. You know, it, it happened. And if you're anything like me, those were some of the best days of 1999. So if nothing else, The Phantom Menace gave us that, which was really real and wonderful. And I think that the disappointment that a lot of people felt later um, often makes them either forget that joy or even be mad at it, which I think is just silly. Um, You know, it's possible to be bummed about an outcome, but still recognize the good parts that came before. Like, I'm doing that right now. So so anyway, when I enjoyed that experience just so much that I wanted to experience it again and again and again. And eventually it just became a thing that I would do when I had a free evening or afternoon. I would go see Star Wars Episode One again. So all in all, I saw it nine times in the theater. Wow. And I actually hadn't seen it again in its entirety until I watched it for this podcast. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to say that I did still enjoy it. It wasn't the same sort of crazy roller coaster of excitement um, that it was the first nine times. Um, but how could it be really? Because a the movie theater packed with adoring fans. And those fans that I was in the theater with were certainly adoring, let me tell you. Um, It's a very different thing from sitting on the couch in front of a TV with your rather dubious husband sitting by your side watching it with you under protest. (laughs) Let's just clarify, your husband's not dubious, he's dubious about the movie. (laughs) Correct, (laughs) correct. Yes, he was He was kind of like, huh, so we're watching The Phantom Menace tonight, huh? Okay. <laughs> wow, there's so much to unpack here. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. anybody who's listened to you on the podcasts that you host and guest on knows that, yes, you, you're clearly, you're one of these people who loves the community that goes around a fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So I, I can totally get that you would feed off of the excitement in the theatre and that would play into, you know, good memories of it, totally. Um the idea that uh, you'd already been exposed to Doctor Who before Star Wars is kind of crazy because I grew. I'm British. I grew up here, <laughs> and yet I I remember them being fairly concurrent in terms of my own awareness of them. You know, I don't recall being aware of Doctor Who before Star Wars was around because, like I say, I was quite a young child. Um, so yeah, that's that's fascinating. And I am I, I'm a Doctor Who fan, but I am more of a Star Wars fan, no question. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> You see, the the disappointment that came later, honestly, for me, that later was about 80 minutes after uh, the initial mm-hmm. excitement, because <laughs> re-watching it myself, the, the first 10 minutes are actually okay. The first 10 minutes, I'm watching it and thinking, this is a lot better than I remember, but then it just goes downhill fast. You know, <laughs> if they just, I mean, you've got the Jedi cutting up droids with lightsabers, using their lightsabers to cut through a blast door. That was ingenious, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If the rest of the movie had been like that, it would have been, well, maybe not great, but it would have been <laughs> acceptable, you know. <laughs> it would have been a hell of an improvement over everything that comes after, in my opinion. I think for old older fans like me, part of the part of the issue was definitely the aesthetic, the fact that it was all so shiny and clean and new. Mm-hmm. And although that makes sense, because you're going back to the Republic before the fall of the Republic, it just looked so different to what we were expecting from Star Wars. 
that is like the one basic thing that I keep coming back to every time I think about this movie and the way that so many people of different age groups feel about it. Because when you talk to people who are quite a bit younger than I am, you actually do find a lot of people that love this movie. Yes. Maybe all of the prequels, but I really focus on this one because frankly, I didn't like the other two. But <laughs> but this one I really quite enjoyed. And and the folks that saw it without sort of all of that that extra baggage really, really liked it. I mean, the, the bottom line here is that The Phantom Menace is a movie that was made for children. And now whether it should have been made for children is a totally separate question. Maybe it should have been made for those of us who were kids when the original trilogy came out, or better yet, as something that would appeal to both children and adults. Um, And it's very easy to be mad that it wasn't, but the fact remains that it really is basically a children's movie that has Star Wars stuff in it. Um, I mean, I I haven't seen a ton of interviews with George Lucas, but from what I've seen, it seems pretty clear that he sees the universe with a very sort of childlike wonder. And that's not a bad thing. Without it, we never would have gotten the original Star Wars trilogy in the first place. And I think we can all agree that that would be a terrible thing. Um, So he's just kind of a big kid. And I, I rather love that about him. So he made these movies in a way that he thought would appeal to big kids like him. But what he didn't take into account is that there's a pretty vast difference between someone who sees the world with that sense of utter childlike wonder and somebody who is grown up and still loves to play in a, a playground that they loved as a child. So that you've got childlike and then there's childlike with a capital C. And I think most Star Wars fans are are like the lowercase c childlike and George Lucas is like a super huge capital C child in his mind. Um, On the incomparable episode discussing, I think it was the second prequel, I I believe it was Monty who said that George Lucas doesn't really get what it is that we like about Star Wars. And I think he's absolutely right. (laughs) Because I think everything about the Star Wars universe is perhaps equally exciting to George Lucas. So just having some of the same characters and settings is super duper exciting the way it is for a little kid. You know, how kids like what they recognize, what's familiar, that's what gets exciting for them. And in some ways, I'm really no different. So like you throw in a blatant delusion and I am all over it, no matter how pandery it might be. (laughs) I'm happy. So I mean, okay, that's kind of beside the point, but but Phantom Menace is a movie that's made for children. And I think when talking about it, it's important to me to keep that in mind. So I am fine with discussing what it could have and possibly should have been. That is a worthy and fascinating effort, but I feel that's a separate discussion because I think lots, if not most, of the criticisms about this movie are based on a notional viewing of the film. People came in with certain certain notions, certain expectations, and those expectations weren't met. Therefore, they dislike the movie, which is totally fair. But um, while it's totally fine, I don't know if it's entirely fair. I don't think it's fair at all, no. I mean, I, I was one of those people who went in with huge preconceptions, um, but I acknowledge that it, that's absolutely not a fair way to approach the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, for the purposes of, of this discussion, I just, you know, say let's let's get over our own headcanon and actually take a look at what's in front of us without letting the bitterness of of unfulfilled wishes get in the way. Um, and that's not to say that this is a great film, um, but the discussion does become very different when you judge it largely on what it is and not on what it's trying to live up to. Um, and of course, the overall canon of Star Wars does have to play into the, to the discussion like a little bit, um, but maybe not as heavily as usually have. Happens, uh, with the adults who love the original trilogy um, because like I said the, the younger folks really adore this film and I think that that's because it was really made for them more than it was made for us and I put myself in the us category very sort of lightly 
it's a tricky one to sort of separate yourself from because you're you're right of course this was made for children as was the original the thing is that and you see i see this all the time in the comics world um as the people who were children for the original grow older they look back on it and think like oh well it may have been made for children but it also you know had appeal to adults because it still appeals to them and their adults now whereas at the time i don't think there was an adult in the world who you know apart from maybe hardcore sci-fi fans who like my mom right who actually you know sort of would have looked at star wars and said oh yeah that's a great movie um it was totally aimed at children and you know if you need any convincing of that just look at all the merchandising that lucas (laughs) you know made out like a bandit on um so yeah, that's that is something that's really difficult to separate from one's own life and getting older. As I say, you, we see this in comics all the time with not just superheroes, even 2000 AD, the British sci-fi comic. Uh, as I got older, it kind of it grew up with its audience uh, and actually took that too far for a while, and then you know sort of refound its feet in the 2000s. It is a real danger, and it also. Uh, perhaps ironically, as I'm talking to you about this, uh, reminds me of an argument that a lot of British people have about Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Because Doctor Who is a kid's show, or it's billed as a family show, but basically over here that means a kid's show. Mm -hmm. And it's it's used both as a defence... Like whenever there's a bad episode, people say, oh, well, it's for kids. doesn't matter. And whenever there's a great episode, uh, everybody goes, oh, isn't it wonderful that it's a family show and appeals to all ages? And, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's used as both a criticism and a defense of the same thing, much in the same way that that is said of Star Wars. And again, used as both a criticism, oh, it's just for kids, and a defense like, well, hang on, no, it's made for kids. It's not for you. Very true. And I think in this case, it's it's very interesting because there's such a huge gap in between. And so it's not like a comic where it had a chance to sort of grow up with the audience. I, I really feel like George Lucas has not grown up at all. Perhaps the opposite. So when you, you jump back and do these prequels, it's 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 almost a step in the opposite direction, and it's it's almost feels more uh, more directed at kids and more childlike than than even some of the originals. Yeah, I think especially when you consider what the extended universe had become, and that's the thing. Lucas, I mean, Lucas officially had ultimate oversight and sort of ultimate authority over the extended universe. But I don't think it would surprise anybody to know that you know somebody writing a a Mara Jade comic for Dark Horse probably was not getting George Lucas himself to actually look over those pages, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And the same with a lot of the novels and stuff, I'm sure. Lucas had people to take charge of that canon and be the sort of official approvers, you know, people who who do official approval of that sort of thing. And so the extended universe over the, the years felt like it had grown up. That did feel a lot more mature and aimed at people who were now adults because they had watched star wars as a child and then of course lucas himself as you say hadn't been really involved in that at all and hadn't grown up much at all between so he came to episode one with a completely different viewpoint he didn't care about the extended universe he's like well i didn't write any of that so as far as i'm concerned it's not canon it's not real Mm -hmm. and so maybe that is why we got such a Maybe that's why it was a shock, perhaps, to the system, to those of us who, I mean, I'm not a huge Extended Universe reader, but I was aware of some of it, certainly. And I knew that it had taken on that, not darker tone exactly, but a more serious tone, more dramatic tone. 
Certainly. And that, you know, that's something I hadn't even thought of that you get a lot of this sort of more, more adult themes, I guess, as you go farther into the extended universe. But then you have George Lucas here who, like you said, may not have been paying attention to that. So he just kind of goes back to the same, same well that he was in, in the first place and, and ignores all of that stuff. And one of the common complaints that I see about, um, about these earlier or the later early films gosh it's hard to talk about those um (laughs) (laughs) tenses are hard man Um, but one common complaint i hear is that he doesn't have any new ideas and i completely disagree with that characterization there are plenty of new ideas you might not like them all like midichlorians spring instantly to mind (laughs) um, but they're there and the fact that the phantom menace's plot is so similar to star wars i don't see that as laziness or uninventiveness Uh, george lucas may be many things uninventive is not one of them. Um, I see it as just an excellent example of parallel structure. When you look at it as a whole with the rest of the films, I find this story heartbreaking. We see history repeating itself, which is a neat narrative trick that that I've always liked, um, but you get specific internal variation. So you get a young Skywalker kid from Tatooine who's got some innate force powers, who's whisked off into the larger universe and a larger conflict, which hinges upon him in the end. And But of course, then you see that the two characters react to and handle their challenges very, very differently. Now, I absolutely despise the idea of watching things in a different order from how they were created. But when you look specifically at The Phantom Menace and the first Star Wars film, there would be kind of a neat bit of, oh no, here we go again, that you might get if you had seen Anakin's story play out before Luke's. Um, And I can almost imagine watching Luke and thinking that his turn to the dark side is inevitable um, if I didn't know anything about popular culture and know that 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 didn't happen. Um, So... And back to the just the repetition and, and parallel structure thing, you also have to remember that we're you know talking about mythology here. Whether you see Star Wars as a, a great myth um, or not, I think George Lucas did. So, and, and I agree. I think in many ways it's sort of built on classic mythological structures and tropes. Um, if you haven't seen Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth, I highly recommend it. There's some really good talk about Star Wars and the hero's journey in like the first couple of episodes. I think, um, and Lucas himself has has compared this repetition. You know, he says it's on purpose. He compares it to music and poetry, a, a recurring theme that's that's slightly changed each time. And I really love that idea. For me, it totally works. Well, and you you actually, just to take a quick aside into the music, you see that actually throughout the Star Wars movies in the soundtracks. John Williams does a, a wonderful job of giving each character and even locations leitmotifs and refrains and you're repeating themes and stuff d- that do that job as a good, any good soundtrack really should, especially an operatic soundtrack would. Now, have you read the, uh, that article that uh, Jason from The Incomparable was tweeting the other day about the Star Wars saga and ring theory storytelling? <laughs> I, I've skimmed the site. I may actually uh, have the guy who, uh, Mike Climo, his name is, I may actually mm-hmm. get Mike on this show to talk about some of the other prequels. 
especially as I now know that you won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely won't. I would be interested to listen to that. I thought that, I mean, I read I read the, the first few pages of it and then sort of skimmed later. And um, while it is very interesting, I am afraid I don't subscribe to that newsletter. Uh, it is an amazingly well-researched and thought-out theory, but it kind of reminds me of Room 237, that documentary about the conspiracy theories surrounding the movie The Shining, where uh, like, yeah, yeah. everything means something. Uh, it, to, to me, it smacked a little bit of taking the text of the film and retconning intent where I'm not sure there really was any. I mean, maybe there was. Maybe all of that is true and George Lucas is a ring theory storytelling genius, but so what if he is? Because that kind of storytelling has almost nothing to do with why I like the film. And it sure as heck didn't save the prequels for anybody else, even if it is true. Yeah. Sometimes a cigar really is just a cigar. <laughs> yep. Are you familiar with Machete Order? I've heard the term and I, I know that it's been explained to me, but I don't remember it. All right. Well, I will I will now re-explain and for the, benef- do. for the benefit of listeners as well, because this is something I have not done, but uh, it strikes me as something that would be, you know, worthwhile doing if you wanted to watch all of the movies and get more out of them. And that is you watch the prequels and the original trilogy in a completely different order. Uh, it's not actually that different. It's just... And, the reason that I thought of this was because you mentioned about how the the father and the son, you know, Vader and Luke parallels one another. And with Machete Order, you skip, uh, well, you can skip episode one. You don't have to. <laughs> you watch episode four first. Mm-hmm. Like, so you watch A New Hope first, then you watch Empire. So four, five, then you, you skip or you don't skip episode one, depending on whether you want to or not, <laughs> and go one, two, three and then watch Jedi. Mm-hmm. So you would have seen, you know, all of the prequels, you would have seen Anakin become Darth Vader before you get the whole Luke suddenly wearing black, Luke faces the Emperor, is he going to turn to the dark side? So I think it would actually enhance what you were talking about, that feeling that it feels inevitable that Luke is going to turn to the dark side. Whereas when you watch the original trilogy, I remember being a child and watching Return of the Jedi. And although there was a little bit of drama there, at the back of your mind, you kind of knew that he was never actually going to turn to the dark side. That wasn't going to happen because you'd grown up watching Luke Skywalker and knowing that he was a good guy. Mm-hmm. But if you'd watched them in this machete order, it would enhance that feeling, as you say, that Luke's turn to the dark side is actually inevitable. And so maybe it would give episode six, maybe it would give Jedi further drama. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I really, I have to say that I don't like the idea of skipping episode one, but I can understand if you are just trying to get sort of the the structure of of the story and, and the overall kind of narrative that that if you take out the, the first episode, um, you're still kind of getting all of that. But, but boy, you just, you miss out on, for me, the only good stuff in the prequels. <laughs> well, I think the argument is that there's nothing in one that isn't, nothing important in one that isn't then repeated in episode two. You know what I mean? You wouldn't miss out on any sort of vital story stuff that isn't recapped. Right. And from a a plot outline, I guess I have to agree with that because I think what we have in episode one is sort of, it's almost like a prologue. Um, It's, it's world building. And for me, I, I am a sucker for world building. So it's, it's just kind of, it it gives you an orientation and a place to put you in this universe. And I suppose if we're talking strictly machete order, you've already sort of got that from episodes four and five. But uh, in this case, I, I, I like it because for me, especially 
I needed to reorient myself into this universe because it's a different time. Mm. It's it's much, much earlier. So uh, I wasn't entirely certain what to expect. I didn't go in with a bunch of expectations about what the Star Wars universe was like so many years earlier. I had no headcanon at all as far as this was concerned. So... <laughs> I, I liked just the fact that I was I was learning about the the way that this world worked throughout that. So I, to me, I would I would hate that. And I mean, there are other things I like about this film to talk about the sort of the more specifics. The things that I like the most are the most basic and fundamental parts of the film, and that would be the characters and the story. Um, and because believe it or not, I genuinely do like the characters in this film. But let's be clear, that doesn't necessarily include the actors or the performances or even <laughs> or even a lot of the dialogue, really. Um, but that does not stop me from enjoying the, you know, the sweet team of Jedis, like you said, you know, kicking butt with their their lightsabers and, and their nice, relaxed mentor-mentee relationship. Or the teenage girl who is the elected queen of an entire planet. That is just awesome. Um, we don't need to talk about how annoyed I am that she's like the only female who gets more than a couple lines and is not a slave right, and a pretty yeah. stereotypical mother. Um, but at least we did have one or some of the pilots were women too. Um, but that said, I mean, not to, to cut down on me, uh, I, I liked her. Um, and the long shot of, of her, you know, Anakin's mother standing and watching him walk away in, in long shot is one of, I think, the best parts of the movie. It is so heartbreaking and beautiful and perfect. That scene just makes me get weepy every single time. Um, and then you have Anakin himself. I love stories about the kid who has more power than he knows what to do with and has to learn how to use it. Um, and again, let's not say too much about the acting, but Jake Lloyd is pretty cute he is cute as a button um and that scene when he's on the ship and he's so cold because he's left this hot planet that he's used to I, my heart just goes out to him i think that was a, a maybe the scene wasn't played as well as it could have been you know george lucas is, is a storyteller not a director and um but I, I i think it was effective as far as, as making me making believe it so maybe there's not a ton of nuance but i sort of felt like the characters are more a little bit wooden, but they're they're archetypes, archetypes like in mythology or fairy tales. Um, I really do see Star Wars as just sort of a grand tale. But, you know, not everybody's Homer. This isn't poetry, despite what George Lucas might want to think. So there are certainly no, you know, rosy fingers of dawn here. Um, but instead, it's it's my own mind that pastes on the nuance and the subtlety, and in some cases, the personality, I will admit. Uh, but that is something that I commonly, commonly did as a child. Um, you know, I thought that Thundercats, I don't know if you had Thundercats over there, but I thought that was an epic, and I mean epic tale. Have you watched Thundercats lately? Oh my gosh, it is not epic at N all. Not in recent years, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's Well, I don't recommend it if you have any fond memories. Um, <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of what kids do is, is you know, we take these, these basic structures and fill in a lot of the blanks ourselves and call it a failing if you want. But for me, it actually, it works. It gives me room for my own head to sort of expand things a little bit. No, I don't think that's a failing at all. I actually, I really love that. Even as an adult, I love stories that give you that space to inject your own things in. And that does uh, tie into something that I, I wanted to say, which, <laughs> because you, you reminded me of this, talking about when you said that uh, they're not a disappointment if you view them as not as what they're trying to live up to, mm -hmm. but as what they're trying to be. And I thought that was really interesting because, as you also mentioned, headcanon. And yeah, thinking about my own generation's reaction to them. See, in the years between, you know, sort of original trilogy Star Wars and the prequels, 
and from watching the original Star Wars, when Obi-Wan talked about the old days and him and Han were, you know, Han was saying, oh, you're forgotten religion, you know, and even uh, whatever his name is, the guy that Vader force chokes at the start and says like, you know, your, your ancient hotchpotch religion or whatever. And these people are basically saying like, you know, oh, it's a load of hocus pocus, a bit like people might say about witchcraft these days or something. So I always imagined, and I know a lot of my friends did as well, I imagined the Jedi being like kind of wandering samurai or something, mm -hmm. just a few of them roaming the galaxy with some power and authority, but, you know, few enough of them and they were mysterious enough to be feared and unknown. Most people would never have seen a Jedi, you know, that sort of very mysterious, wandering figure of justice. And then it turns out, no, actually, they've, you know, they're in the Imperial Senate. They've got a council on Coruscant. They're probably mm -hmm. followed around by paparazzi for all we know. You know, everybody <laughs> knows, everybody knows who the Jedi are. And that was a massive shock because i think almost everyone in my generation who got into star wars in the way that we did that i and my friends did would have had that feel we all had that feeling that jedi was special and there weren't many of them and it was an old order that was maybe already in decline in the time of the prequels and it turns out that that's not actually the case at all and the, the whole timeline was so compressed as a result mm -hmm. but it's interesting what you say about you know headcanon and watching these movies what they're trying to live up to and that shouldn't really be the case you should obviously take any movie on its own merits so it's just interesting to think about that and sort of chide myself if you like for for not doing that myself <laughs> yep and like i said before you know it's it it is fine to to have an emotional reaction to something based on your own expectations uh, but i think it's important to recognize it when it happens um, so i'm not i'm not you know going to come down hard on anybody for for feeling that way about the movies that's fine but when it sort of squeaks over into telling other people that they shouldn't like it because they should have these these same preconceptions that's where i start to get a little bit grumpy about stuff sure and there has been enough of that like that that happens in fandom enough that it it tends to get my back up just a little bit that, there has been a lot of that with the prequels i mean actually my reasons for not liking it uh, if I sort of put that aside, I just don't think it's a very good story and I don't think it's particularly well told or well directed. Um, but that's a case of, you know, your mileage may differ and clearly does w with everyone. Mm -hmm. But that's actually my sort of, yeah, my main problems with it are, and I suppose this is kind of headcanon in a way, but being a writer myself from a writer's point of view, I look at it and I'm like, so many things that, you know, that I just don't like about how this has been handled and how this story is being told. <laughs> but then I'm always wary then of, is that just because I'm thinking of, well, if I were writing this, I would do it <laughs> like that, which is always a dangerous road to go down, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that, that you're not you're not alone. I don't think you're even in the minority when it comes to that sort of feeling. <laughs> but but for me, I, I really like the story of this, of the first film. Um, again, let's make that clear that I'm not talking about episode two or three. Uh, people like to joke that the prequels are all about economics and trade agreements. Uh, the very first line, the very first line of the crawl, the taxation of trade routes is in dispute. I mean, really? <laughs> True, but episode one really has almost none of that. You've got this badass blockade of an entire planet. Um, but yes, it was fundamentally caused by economics and trade agreements, but you don't see that. I mean, except for in the crawl, there's a couple of words, which the little kids probably were just ignoring in the first place. Uh, 
instead what you were seeing is the badass space blockade and an army of droids with funny little voices and a beautiful and i mean beautiful planet that is under the thumb of, of some bad guys and fighting for its very survival and then you've got the jedis with their lightsabers who are protecting the queen and battling droids and a pod racing scene that maybe goes on for a little too long but in the movie theater it was like being on a carnival ride i mean all of those things uh, just I, that sucked me in completely um maybe the part that that got me the best was you've got a kid who is taken far far away from his home and just wants so badly to help his mother and the universe really um but he's just so scared and alone and overwhelmed and i when i'm watching the phantom menace i try not to think ahead too much to the fact that this kid is darth vader but you know you can't really escape it entirely it's, it's part of the the whole deal um in my own personal headcanon, I sometimes wonder if the fact that they found him at this age, at this time in his life, if that is part of what causes him to just go so terribly wrong later. Because he's he's not so young that his entire upbringing could have been with the Jedis. You know, they could have wholly indoctrinated Anakin and maybe he would have been fine. Or if he was taken a little later in life, after he had grown up a bit more, felt more sure of himself and his place in the world secure in his own abilities you know maybe if they hadn't discovered him he'd actually be less indoctrinated yeah i mean maybe he was you know if he was already a a teenager or something and at that age where he's kind of ready to roam the galaxy to quote-unquote find himself maybe he would have been able to learn more about uh, the jedis without so much initial fear clouding everything that he did and learned and i am totally getting off on a tangent here but (laughs) that's the kind of thing that this no no no. this is interesting totally that's the kind of thing this movie makes me think about and i think that that's a great thing some of the best entertainment for me is the stuff that makes me think about it and think about the characters as real people living real lives that can be affected by what happens to them so so yay i'm just getting very excited talking about this movie (laughs) The, the talking about characters and the rest of their lives off screen you have to feel sorry for darth maul (laughs) poor guy is practically the symbol of the prequels i mean really he is the overriding image of the star wars prequels and how much screen time does he get 10 minutes so small and half of that is spent just sort of scowling and not actually being very effective (laughs) Mm -hmm. i know it is but you know he really does pack a punch because because like you said, he's especially for that first film, he was on every lunchbox and, and soda pop can. And I mean, he was just he was everywhere. Kids, like, so many little kids dressed up as Darth Maul, which was really creepy at Halloween. Um, <laughs> and yeah, he really doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. But boy, he, he stands out. I think he's just a, a wonderful bad guy. And I think perhaps the fact that he has such such a little amount of, of screen time and so very few lines is why he works so well, because he doesn't. <laughs> He isn't saddled with a bunch of awkward line readings right. um, and and uncomfortable personal interactions on set. Tatooine is sparsely populated. If the trace was correct, I will find them quickly, Master. Move against the Jedi first. You will then have no difficulty in taking the Queen to Naboo to sign the treaty. At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. So maybe he works that well 
because of those things. And the fact that that lightsaber duel at the end of Phantom Menace is one of my favorite scenes in all of the Star Wars films with the music and the choreography. It's just, it's fantastic. He's like the Boba Fett of of the prequels, (laughs) except that he can fight. Whereas Boba Fett, we see no evidence whatsoever that he has any competence in his chosen career. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you're right. It does allow people to, and Darth Maul is in a lot of the extended universe stuff. Ah. You know, lots of people have done Darth Maul prequels effectively because he is such an iconic looking character. Mm-hmm. Um, that final fight, I actually don't like it. <laughs> really? Tell me why. It's it's the one thing that I know a lot of people who don't like this movie say, well, it, you know, but at least that fight at the end's kick-ass. And I really don't like it. Um, partly it's... I mean, Ray Park is great. He's a great martial artist. There's some great fight choreography and stuff. But then there's also, there was so much in it that just pulled me out of the moment. There's, and I know some for some people this is their favourite bit, but I hate it, the force fields. Oh. <laughs> when the force fields come up and he's just standing there, walking back and forth, scowling, and Qui-Gon goes into meditation. And it's just so dull. Oh, see, I I am on the other side of that argument, 100%. I'm actually a person, I am not generally a fan of action sequences or fight scenes. I have a tendency to get very bored very quickly. And um, in in watching Doctor Who and sort of taking it apart for for podcasts, I have have realized what it is about that. It's, It's when an action sequence is there just for the sake of having some action in a film, um, just for pacing or whatever reason. Right. That's when I don't like it because what's it, it doesn't tell me anything. I enjoy action sequences that are actually that are moving the narrative itself forward, in which you're learning something about the characters or the plot, um, or it's it's giving some extra development to one of those those elements. Those are the action sequences I like, and that is why I like this one so much, and why I particularly like the force fields so much because. You are really seeing outlined, you know, in bold on the big screen, what these three different characters are, the way that they react to things. So you get Darth Maul, who is, you know, his reaction, he's the big bad guy. So, you know, he's he's going to do what he's going to do, and, and, and that's fine. But the exciting part for me is watching the two Jedis and the way that they handle things differently. So you do, you get Qui-Gon, he just kneels down and he meditates. And for me, that, like, that actually ramped up the tension rather than bringing me out of it because I was like, oh my gosh, like he's able to center himself. What a, what a freaking Jedi. Like that's, that's what he should do. And then you have, and you have poor uh, Ewan McGregor pacing back and forth and stomping and, and you can see so much that he has, he has not reached the place that his master is yet. And you've gotten hints of that throughout the rest of the film, but this was the scene that brought it home for me that, that showed me his impetuousness and he just wants to run headlong into things and, yeah, so that is why I enjoy this that scene so much, um, because you get more about the characters in it, in addition to having the beautiful choreography and you know the intense music and all that stuff. Well, there's an old Hollywood adage that every fight scene should be about something, mm-hmm. uh, which speaks to what you were just saying, the idea that a fight scene shouldn't be there just to provide pacing. It should always have a point. It's a bit like an argument in a drama. You know, there is always subtext. When two characters are arguing, they're never actually arguing about what they're saying. The, you know, the argument, the subject of the argument is just is just an excuse to argue about their feelings or something else that's going on. You know, that's 
that's a very old sort of dramatic trick. And it should be the same with action sequences and fight sequences in a good movie. I mean, you know, maybe not so much in a mm-hmm. just a silly action movie like the Fast and Furious movies, which I love, right. but they are silly action movies, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a movie like this, yes, action scenes should be about something. Absolutely. But I think that's part of the problem. The fight scene here does reveal character, you're right, in the sense that they react differently to the force fields and stuff, but it's not about anything other than, you know, defeating Darth Maul, and you're not even given much of a reason for that happening. Plus, also, these gantries with no handrails, like, <laughs> yeah. we, th- they seem to crop up in Doctor Who a lot as well, and they drive mm-hmm. me bonkers. Um, but more than that, more than that, the the one thing, apart from the force fields, that really got me was... Uh, at the end, when after spoilers, when um, <laughs> when Darth Maul, you know, kills Qui Gon, and then Obi Wan, who has been apparently helpless and sort of hanging off the edge of one of these gantries now, just sort of waiting to die, suddenly is able to force flip himself up onto the balcony and grab a lightsaber, and and you're like, hang on a minute, why couldn't you have done any of that three minutes ago, and then you could have saved his life? <laughs> well, I think the idea, for the way I read it, was just that he 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 was motivated to do it be- because of the death of Qui-Gon, that he wasn't, he, he didn't think he was able to do it, and then he was suddenly filled with powerful, well, maybe rage, which is, is a little bit dangerous, um, and then is able to do it, or, you know, possibly there's the whole, you know, Qui-Gon might be a force ghost and somehow helped him to do that, so he wasn't able to do it until he was dead you know i can hand wave with the best of them but all of this is headcanon isn't it yeah there's no evidence for any of this in the movie that's the problem (laughs) no question there but i think that that there's a lot of this film that sort of leaves it's left a little bit open to interpretation in that way um and and there's there's a decent amount of hand waving that needs to be done and i'm fine with that because i i don't have a problem most of the time making the pieces fit what's the saying apply liberal amounts of hand wavium to your headcanon (laughs) <laughs> yep, that's the one. <laughs> oh. But the other thing that I really just enjoyed about about this film is that it looks and maybe more, even more importantly, sounds gorgeous. Um, yes, the sound design is extraordinary, yes. It's just, oh God, the sounds. I mean, I, I love the sound effects of the Star Wars universe. Sound design is just, it's so often overlooked as an element of filmmaking and it makes such a monumental difference. Having the right mix of buzzes and boops and hums and vrooms and swishes and whatever else, you know, can really make a film orders of magnitude better. And honestly, when I rewatched Phantom Menace for this podcast, that was the part that got to me the most. Every little footstep and lightsaber noise just did something inside me and you know ramped it up so much more. It brought me right back to that summer of watching this movie so many times. It was genuinely exciting. So, you know, no wonder it was nominated for two sound Oscars. And it, yes, The Matrix did beat it in both of those categories. And I guess I can't argue with that because I also saw The Matrix nine times in the theater that year. Um, but but the sound of, of Star Wars just, it, it scoops me right back in no matter what. I don't even have to see the screen. And 
I think sound is maybe the thing that this film got right more than anything else. Yeah, I, I think they were robbed, actually. I, I love The Matrix, but I don't think the sound design in The Matrix deserved to beat this for an Oscar mm. because, yeah, the sound design is the one thing that uh, is absolutely great about this movie. Something else, actually, kind of related. A lot of people had a problem with some of the costumes and Queen Amidala's ridiculous outfits and that sort of thing. <laughs> I, I actually don't have a problem with that part of it because this is meant to be showing the post-imperial phase of a declining republic. You know, a society sliding into decadence. So all of that mm -hmm. actually fits. That wasn't an issue for me at all. You know, the costume, the that sort of uh, set design and the sound design, I thought were all great. It was just everything else <laughs> that, I, that I didn't like. No, I do completely agree. Um, I thought her costumes were amazing and they really were costumes, even within the world of, of this, this universe, they were, they were costumes because like you said, you know, declining empire, when you, when you look at the, uh, the trappings, they seem to get bigger and bigger as an empire goes, goes down and down. Cause you know, comp compensation, um, <laughs> And as far as the the special effects and stuff, I am not one to notice special effects. Um, so possibly somebody looking at it even today could tell me why it doesn't hold up or what's wrong with it in that department. But yeah. for me, I <laughs> I just enjoyed the heck out of sitting in a theater and losing myself in this world because to me it looked it looked really good. It felt real. It was very well realized and i remember hearing stories about people after uh, jim cameron's avatar came out people wanting so badly to live on the world of pandora that they actually needed support groups after seeing the movie a bunch of times wow um and that was kind of to a much much lesser extent that was me after seeing the phantom menace i kept going back to the theater again and again because i just wanted to spend another couple hours escaping from the real world and living in this colorful exciting almost magical one where the good guys were super heroic and the bad guys, at least from my vantage point, were obviously pure evil and very easy to recognize. That was the other thing, yeah. Did they really think that they would get away with the whole Sidious Palpatine thing? I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, but, you know, that, and actually, he is another thing I like about this film. Palpatine, you know, he as a character is playing both sides. And I love that kind of scummy political behind the scenes machinations. And Ian McDiarmid does a fantastic job of being that kind of politician. So he he's a wonderful actor. Yeah. yeah say yeah. what you will about most of the performances in this film, but he is darn good. And you know, really, now that I think about it, Ewan McGregor is pretty good, too. And I liked Liam Neeson in it. You know, they maybe aren't always given the best stuff to work with, but I think they pull it off plenty well enough for me to lose myself in the story. So, you know, you've got them and then you've got the visuals. I mean, Naboo is lovely. It is just just a gorgeous place. And I want to go there for my vacation. <laughs> All right. I think that's as good a place as any to... Uh draw a veil over this. <laughs> but yeah, you, you have made some points that I confess I hadn't considered. I still, I can't watch the movie and, and like it overall, <laughs> but I think maybe you have given me a, a slight appreciation for some things that I hadn't considered before. So well, yay, yay for that. Yes. I mean, I, I really didn't expect to convince anybody to change their minds about it. And that's okay. I don't need to. It is okay for other people to not like the things that I like. And it is also okay if other people like things that I don't like. Uh, so I hope your listeners will keep that in mind before they flame me out of existence. <laughs> and speaking of which, where can people find you if they like what you have to say? <laughs> 
and preferably not if they don't. <laughs> uh, I am I am easily found on Twitter. My handle is at HollyGoDarkly. Uh, I also have a blog where I talk about all kinds of geeky things, and that is FangirlKnitsScarf.wordpress.com. Uh, and then I have uh, a couple of podcasts that you can find me on. As you said, I co-host Verity, the uh, Hugo-nominated Doctor Who podcast. Uh, and I'm also a co-host of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. So if you're a, a Babylon 5 fan, we are watching from the beginning and we have separate separate parts of the podcast for people who want spoilers and people who don't. So that's a, a nice, kind thing. That's very I considerate. Think. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I'm also uh, on The Incomparable quite quite often talking about all kinds of geeky things, which is super fun and wonderful. Excellent. Erica Ensign, may the fourth be with you. May the fourth be with you. You've been listening to Unjustly Maligned, episode 10, with Anthony Johnston and Erica Ensign. Unjustly Maligned is a 7RQ production for The Incomparable and is made in England. If you're enjoying the show, please do consider taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. I have to admit, I was pretty nervous about this. Usually I don't get nervous for podcasting because I do it all the time. But I felt like this was this was a big, big weight to carry. It's a big <laughs> to topic to take on, isn't really, it? Yeah, yeah. It really is. And I just, I wanted to try to do it as much justice as I possibly could. Uh, because, you know, I, I'm not coming to it from a place of abject love, but I really, really enjoy it. So yeah, well, which, walk that which line. frankly puts you in, you know, uh, in <laughs> uh, people over 20 years old. I think that puts you in quite a minority these days. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. I, I think that I'm, I'm kind of the perfect bridge between those two different types of fans. You know, the young kids who just don't care about the, the older films and then the, the older folks who I don't care about the younger films. Right, I'm, I'm yeah. able to. I'm able to enjoy it all, and I think that that's a good place to be. But I'll, uh, hopefully, everybody is looking forward to the new movies. That's something that I haven't actually yeah. looked into. I mean, obviously, I think all old school fans like me are looking forward to these because they look more mm-hmm. like the original movies. But I wonder if younger fans who do love the prequels and grew up on the prequels are also now looking forward to the J.J. Abrams movies. You know, I bet they are because, you know, as you quite rightly said earlier, um, how the certain comic books have grown up with the fans. I think that that these films definitely look like they're more grown up films. So, of course, the older fans are going to be like it. But the kids who were young when The Phantom Menace came out, they have also grown up. So I think uh, that's true, yeah. I think that we're going to have basically both halves of the audiences coming together to enjoy this, assuming that they're done well. The que- So the question is actually going to be, what about seven or eight year old kids or 10 year old kids watching the J.J. Abrams movie? Are they going to like it? That's going that to be interesting is, to see. Mm-hmm. That mm. is a very interesting question, and I will, I will, I will watch for that because you know it makes me it makes me wonder. Well, um, because if they don't, then you've lost a new generation. This is you know mm-hmm. again, this is something that we deal with in comics a lot, especially with long running serial superhero comics. Is this question of well, hang on, if the kids aren't reading, what happens yes. in twenty years' time? You know, suddenly we've got a generation mm-hmm. that's not reading comics. Now, luckily, we seem to have wrestled that back over the years thanks to manga ironically which like you know a Mm -hmm. lot of people in the hardcore 
American fandom can't stand because they see it as some kind of weird foreign invasion. Um, <laughs> and people. they don't, yeah. And if it's not a superhero in a cape, they're not interested. But actually, looking at the audience now and the way the audience is vastly diversifying, uh, manga kind of saved a generation of comic readers. Um, and yeah, that's, I wonder how this one's going to go down, you know, if that sort of thing could happen in Star Wars as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, interesting you say that because I uh, I interviewed Gary Russell, former script editor of Doctor Who and editor of Doctor Who magazine uh, at the last Gallifrey One convention and asked him, you know, what would you do if you took over the show? And he said that one of the things he would do is actually take it back a few notches and make it a little bit more for the kids again, because in the, the, the past few seasons, it's been very very much more adult and and some scarier episodes that are are tougher for parents to show their kids and he he said exactly what you were saying that he wanted to you know get the next generation in and make sure that the kids are still loving it so that the show can go on and on and on and on absolutely yeah although i i do think the capaldi uh the last capaldi well the first capaldi season mm-hmm. made a couple of you know attempts at that i think i i, I yes. feel fairly confident that we are actually moving towards that and away from mm-hmm. the deadly seriousness that we got with the later matt smith uh, yes. series wrong podcast uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> one note that i made here when you were talking about sound design did you see that video about the falcon hyperdrive sound no oh, i did not i will put a link to this in the show notes please do uh, and i will email you the link beforehand <laughs> um yeah i i can't remember the guy's name but it was one of the sound designers on the original trilogy and it's a really old movie you know presumably one of those things they made for the sort mm-hmm. of making of specials that they used to show on TV, um, of describing how the Falcon's hyperdrive failure sound. All right, now if we took all these sounds and played them together, we'd get the, the following effect of the hyperdrive malfunctioning. Yes, oh... I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Because, yeah, the sound design in all of the Star Wars movies has been superb. I remember the the sound of lasers, spaceship lasers, in the original Star Wars trilogy was like no, no sound I had ever heard in my life when I was a child. You know, that really kind of harsh... Mm-hmm. I had never heard a sound like that before. Of course I hadn't. It was invented. But that mm-hmm. alone, just hearing that sound is enough to immediately transport me to the world of Star Wars. Yeah, you know, they say that that scent smell is one of the strongest senses as far as eliciting a memory. Mm. And I really think that sound has to be a close second because even more than just seeing something, it's it just reaches to a part of my brain that I can't normally access. It just takes me to a place. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Um, and yeah, as I say, this I'd love to see, I would happily watch a whole, you know, hour and a half documentary on the sound design of Star Wars. Maybe something mm-hmm. like that exists. If people are listening and you know that that thing exists and I just haven't seen it, please tweet at me. <laughs> Tell me because I would watch that in a heartbeat. Um, and the Twitter for the show is UMPFM, incidentally, if you didn't know. Are we on the air now? Hello? It would, help if I, it would help if I unmuted the microphone. <laughs> I forgot the Yeti mutes itself when you first plug it in. So. 